Hello and welcome to a special episode of Shattered Lives, the Irish Daily Star's crime podcast. I'm crime correspondent Michael O'Toole and joining me is our chief reporter Paul Healy. And today's a very special day because we're talking about the upcoming verdict in the murder trial of Jerry Hutch, or a man known as the Monk. As you will know, he is charged with the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Airport Hotel on the 5th of every 2016. That's a charge he denies. Now, two men were also on trial with Mr. Hutch, Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy. Neither was charged with murder. Instead, both were charged with facilitating uh, the murder by helping the gang involved in the murder with cars. Now, all three denied the charges. And as you know, there was a very long trial. Monday is D-Day for all three men. They will hear the verdict of the non-jury special criminal court. The three judges led by Miss Justice Tara Burns, will give their judgments. Now, Paul has done a very quick recap so we can all understand where we are because it's very important that everybody fully understands the case. Yeah, well, welcome back to uh, Shattered Lives. It's a bit strange that we're here back talking about Jerry Hutch again after so long. Um, but we felt it's it was important to give you a bit of a summary of things before the verdict next week, as Mick has mentioned. Um, we've had a lot of people kind of asking, and, and even just anecdotally in, in, in life, I've had people asking, what is the case against Jerry Hutch? What exactly is the evidence? So we're just going to try and have a general chit chat about that and try to sum up for you, the listeners, what is the case against Jerry Hutch? What are the arguments for and what are the arguments against? And we'll also discuss where we think things are going to go next, depending upon the verdict next week. And just one thing before we go on, it is we're recording this on Tuesday evening. The 11th of April, and that is the 60th birthday of Mr. Hutch. He's, I don't know if celebrating is the right word, but he is marking his birthday in Wheatfield Prison in West Dublin. So, um, as we reported, he's not going to be given any particular privileges in relation to that. No prisoner is. Uh, he, he might be afforded something uh, in the lines of a Swiss roll by his uh, fellow inmates, but who knows what they might do. He's on a, a special landing there in Weefield Prison with only, I would say, about 10 or so other prisoners. So he's on a very restricted regime there in Weefield Prison and has been ever since uh, his arrest in 2021. So you have suggested, and I think this is a great idea, that we're going to go through the, ev- the, the evidence in the, in the case and what the state alleges Mr. Hutch's role was in the murder. So the murder happened on the 5th of February 2016. That was a Friday. But let's go back to the previous day because there is some significant evidence from the 4th of February. Yeah, well, again, we thought about doing this in a timeline sort of format, although we might, depending on the way the conversation goes, we might go back and forward in time a little bit. But I think I thought it was best for us to start on the 4th of February because that is a key date here. It's the day before the Regency Hotel shooting and there is a hell of a lot of evidence uh, that was presented in the trial in relation to Jonathan Dowdall, the state witness, former Sinn Féin councillor, uh, and what's alleged to have happened on that day. So the events of the 4th of February are very interesting because we know uh, about this alleged phone call made by Patsy Hutch, a brother of Jerry the Monk Hutch, to Patrick Dowdall, uh, the father of Jonathan Dowdall. And this is in relation to the booking of a hotel room there in the Regency Hotel. And that is essentially what Jonathan and Patrick Dowdall got done for in the end. They got done for booking that hotel room, facilitating the murder of David Byrne, because that hotel room was used by Flat Cap, by Kevin Murray, um, one of the gunmen involved in the hit. And so on the 4th of February, Patrick Dowdall rang up the hotel and reserved that room. It was paid for then on a credit card uh, used by Jonathan Dowdall's wife, Patricia, and Jonathan Dowdall was central to the involvement of, of booking that room. Father and son later that evening went to the Regency Hotel, and we know that there was CCTV footage uh, of Patrick Dowdall uh, going into the hotel and reserving the room. So they were caught effectively red-handed in the booking of this hotel room. Now, both of them maintained and, and still maintain that they didn't realise who they were booking the room for. Uh, Patrick Patsy Hutch, it was a family friend and they were taking him at his word and they were doing this favour for him, Jonathan Dowdall says, because they would have done many favours for the Hutches over the years. They would have booked them hotel rooms previously and holidays previously and they had a close relationship. But that all happened on the 4th of February while Jonathan Dowdall says his father and himself were coming back from the north to arrange peace talks and that Patsy Hutch was supposedly looking for peace talks 
with the Kinnahans. And he and this was something that the Dowdalls were allegedly trying to facilitate, trying to help happen. Uh, unbeknownst to them, the Hutches were in fact planning the Regency Hotel shooting, which would happen the next day. Now, that is unbeknownst to them. According to them, they were found guilty with facilitating the murder, uh, unknowingly or otherwise. But the Dowdalls maintained they did not know who they were booking that room for. And ju- just to remind listeners of one thing, Jonathan Dowdall and, and I think the father, you can cor- correct me in this, they were originally charged with murder because oh, they booked the, the, the room. And that shows how serious it was, was regarded. But obviously, you know, uh, the, uh, Miss Jonathan Dowdall went, went state's witness and he, I suppose, I'm not going to say there's a plea deal, but he accepted, he pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of facilitating a murder. Yes, and I think we'll come back to that just in relation to the fact that they were originally charged with murder. And I mean, Jonathan Dowdell was uh, facing trial right up to the last minute before that charge was dropped and he was to accept that lesser plea. But I'll come back to that in a moment because just also in relation to the 4th of February, another massive event that happened is the handing over of these hotel keys. Now, up until a certain point, the guards did not, and maybe they had their suspicions, I don't know, but they did not have evidence in relation to Jerry Hutch's alleged involvement and those hotel keys. But when Jonathan Dowdall did eventually start speaking to the cops, he put Jerry Hutch directly in the frame, and he said that it was himself and his father, Patrick Dowdall, that met with Jerry Hutch on the Richmond Road. Uh, there at the Circle K garage there on the Richmond Road on the 4th of February. So this is just prior um, to later in the evening when they go back to this hotel. It's a, it's, it's a bizarre day. A lot happened in that day. They booked the hotel room and they interacted with Jerry Hutch on Richmond Road, handing over these hotel keys. And just to give context, Richmond, Richmond Road would be in north inner city Dublin. It's where uh, Shelburne Football Club is located. A lot of listeners will know it from there. It's it's a it's a narrow road, but it's quite a busy road, and it's it's a very very well known road. But just to give context, it's it's north inner city Dublin, basically. Yeah, and I mean, look, what what's fascinating about this? It was fascinating at the time to hear all this, the relationship between Jonathan Dowdall and the Hutch family. I suppose just to give people a bit of background, if you don't already know, Jonathan Dowdall was a a public figure. Uh, in the inner city and quite well known given the fact that he was a former Sinn Féin councillor turned independent councillor and just well known within the community. Uh, He was an electrician um, and and lived there on the Navan Road and lived quite an affluent life uh, and had many friends uh, in the area. But his involvement with the Hutch family, so to speak, I mean, I don't know if you can speak to this, Mick, you know, in covering the Hutches, I don't know if the name Jonathan Dowdall came up too often. But the relationship was effectively one that, that came from childhood, according to Jonathan Dowdall. And he knew Patsy Hutch for many years and the families were in many ways intertwined. He knew uh, Patrick Jr. and he knew uh, Derek Delboy Hutch as well. So that's why he was doing all these favours for Patsy Hutch, he says. Yes. And 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 also, I think, didn't wasn't there evidence that uh, Jonathan Dowdall would have given Patrick Hutch, who's Patsy's son and the brother of the murdered Gary Hutch, who was murdered in Spain, one of the main explosive or inciting reasons for the feud. He would have given him work in his electrics electrics company. But I remember that, you know, he he gave evidence basically that Patrick Jr. effectively gave it up because he wanted to go to Spain to be a a, a, work in a gym, wasn't it? Yes, indeed, you're right. So, I mean, he gave him an apprenticeship uh, with with his company at the time. and, and that is the level of closeness that he had with the Hutch family. Uh, but he says he didn't know Jerry Hutch. And that's what's fascinating about this meetup on the Richmond Road, because he claims uh, that himself and his father were shocked to meet Jerry Hutch, uh, to pass over the keys to Jerry Hutch in particular. And they knew of him and he'd known him through boxing and the likes. But his relationship there, he says, was with Patsy Hutch, uh, Jerry's brother. And this is why this evidence, if it's accepted by the, the judges, is really important because... We know that that those keys were the hotel room keys and the hotel room was instrumental to the murder plot. As you say, that's where Kevin Flatcap Murray stayed. So it's direct evidence from Jonathan Dowdall. It's up to the judges again, but it it is very strong and very direct evidence that it is uh, quite significant if the judges accept that. You know, it's quite major. It is quite major. And just jumping on then in our timeline, it's the 5th of February, obviously, 
we don't want to linger on this for too long because people do know David Byrne was murdered in the lobby of the hotel in front of the reception desk. What's key to this is that it is the state's case that Jerry Hutch was one of two, one of the two tactical gunmen uh, disguised as Gardy who shot David Byrne. And that is primarily coming from the word of Jonathan Dowdall based off this confession that we'll talk about in a minute. Shall we shall we just talk about sorry, sorry, but maybe we'll just talk about the the rationale for the attack on the Regency. David Byrne, he was murdered. He was shot dead. He was a close associate of Daniel Kinnan. But I think, you know, it is ex- accepted that he was not the primary target. The main target was Daniel Kinnan. The, the, the Hutch gang effectively wanted to kill Daniel Kinnan because he was the head of the Kinnan, Kinnan crime cartel that had we know that on the 1st of January, 31st of December 2015, going into the 1st of January 2016, the Hutch, the, the Kinahan gang tried to murder Jerry Hutch in uh, Lanzarote. We know that they also tried to, I think there was evidence that there was another a murder attempt on Patsy Hutch around the same time, or before the Regency anyway. We know that the, the Kinahan cartel tried to murder Dahi Douglas in November 2015. He was later murdered in July 2016 by the, the, the Kinnahan cartel. We also know that they mar- the Kinnahans murdered a man called Darren Cairns, both were whom were wrongly blamed for an attempt on Daniel Kinnahan uh, in, in November 2015. So, you know, from the, from the, 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 the sort of the, the narrative would be that the, the Hutch gang decided to strike back because they were convinced that Daniel Kinnahan and his goons were trying to wipe out the Hutch gang so they went for them that's the that's the narrative effectively and they tried to kill Daniel Kinnan in a very very well planned my opinion poorly executed operation they got to within a few feet of Kinnan flat cap and the man dressed as the woman who were carrying pistols I never understood why one of them fired a shot in the air it's almost like it was a warning shot to alert people before, before going in but anyway Kinnan's bouncers saw what was happening threw a bottle at the at the gunman and got Kenan out of there. The, the pandemonium ensued and uh, D- David Byrne ran out, along with everybody else, he ran out. But then he ran back in to try and help people. And that was how he met his, his demise. Yeah, and it, I mean, you and I know that narrative and most people know that narrative for some time, but it was quite harrowing and shocking to actually witness, watch that, mm. the CCTV footage of that uh, in the trial and to also watch the accused man, Jerry Hutch, sit there and watch that footage as well. You watched it very intently. You do see David Byrne coming back into the reception area and you see the two gunmen coming in. You see him get shot by the man identified as Tactical One. You see him lying prone there at the reception desk. And then you see the second gunman standing over him, identifying him and then firing what were the fatal shots uh, that claimed his life. So I watched that video when Patrick Hutch, who later had a, a nolly prosec, we entered the charges were shelved against him for the murder of David Byrne. Uh, it was 2018, I think. And what struck me was the casual nature of the ex. It was an execution and it was very casual. David Byrne was defenseless on the ground. You, you know, the gunman, he didn't, you know, bring up the rifle. He, he just sort of, it was almost like an afterthought for me. He just fired once. Gun was pointing down at the ground. He didn't have to aim or anything, just bang. And I thought it was very, very casual and very cool. Yes, it was an execution, effectively. Um, and I mean, while Daniel Kinahan was the primary target, it's obviously clear that the gunmen, uh, they identified somebody that they recognised as a key member of the Kinahan cartel, and they took his life. They obviously realised that they had an opportunity to do so. I don't know if we know to this day whether they went in there with the intention to murder anyone other than Daniel Kinahan, um, but certainly they took their opportunity when they saw it. Yeah, that's a very good point. We know that Kinnan was the target, but there were other people, you know, like David Byrne and others there. We know Sean McGovern was there. Sean McGovern, who is one of the people indicted with the, the three Kinnan men, Daniel Christopher and Christy Sr. You know, he's one of the, he was shot himself. Now he wasn't badly injured. So look, it's clear that there were a number of people at that way and who were of interest to the Hutch gang. But there's no doubt Daniel Kinnan was the main target. They wanted to, to decapitate the Kinnan organised crime gang. And they came very close to it. Yes, and, and moving forward in the timeline, we know uh, that three days later, Eddie Hutch, uh, brother of Jerry the Monk Hutch, was murdered. This was the retaliation for what happened because, as, as you said, they were their their job was to, to try and decapitate at, at the top of the cartel. They failed in that. And the cartel hit back uh, quite quickly by by murdering Eddie Hutch. The key, the other key thing then happens here in the timeline that we learned during the trial 
is that the guards, uh, the National Surveillance Unit, were incredibly interested in the movements of Jerry Hutch. And we know uh, now from the trial, uh, a particular Garda who can't be identified, a member of the NSU, uh, gave an example of an observation of Jerry Hutch going into the home, uh, coming out of the home, sorry, of Jonathan Dowdall on the Navan Road on the 12th of February. And this Garda who would have known Jerry Hutch for a long period of time was able to identify him on the bike. So the guards obviously became interested in the interactions between Jerry Hutch and this Jonathan Dowdall character. And they continued to watch them. And there was another interaction then on the 20th of February. And the guards, the NSU, watched uh, Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall go off in this uh, Toyota Land, this Land Cruiser uh, 161. And they travelled all the way up north to Killigordon in Donegal, where they met with Mr. Roan, Shane Roan. Uh, Shane Roan... Uh, Fast forward a little bit in the timeline, uh, convicted of being a member of the IRA and uh, possession of firearms, those firearms being the AK-47 rifles uh, that were used in the Regency Hotel. But this is the first interaction that Jerry Hutch uh, and Jonathan Dowdall have, at least that uh, observed, uh, meeting with Shane Rowan and Killy Gordon. And we heard and saw evidence uh, of this interaction. We saw surveillance photographs. And we heard a lot of evidence about what may or may not have gone on in the house uh, when the three of them met. And indeed, uh, as we've spoken on this pod before, we even heard Shane Rowan's account of what allegedly happened. But uh, according to Jonathan Dowdall, Jerry Hutch was looking for peace and Shane Rowan was potentially the broker to speak to Republicans up north about possibly brokering a peace deal and bringing about the end of the so-called Kinahan Hutch feud. And, and what's interesting about that is we really don't know. And uh, like it, it comes down to, we keep saying it's up to the judges. We don't know necessarily exactly what those meetings were about. But we did hear uh, those tapes, which I'll come to, um, between John Tendero and Jerry Hutch. And there is an awful lot of talk about peace and securing a deal of some sort. So certainly that was at the forefront of Jerry Hutch's mind. Uh, there's other things that are said on that tape that are perhaps more incriminating, but definitely they do talk about peace. I know we'll talk about this later, but the thing that strikes me, having listened to the tapes, I listened to them the first time you listened to them the second time, was I honestly got my feeling, listen, I can only give you my analysis or my view. I thought Jerry Hutch had a massive sense of regret about whatever everything that was happening. He wasn't reveling in it. Uh, you know, at one stage we heard, you know, did, did, you know I, did, Jonathan Doddle, I thought was a wee bit gung-ho and a wee bit cocky and talking about Team Hutch. And you remember he was saying there were lads in South Inner City Dublin who were having Team Hutch uh, T-shirts and all that sort of guff. I always got the sense that Hutch was really unhappy about the, the, the whole of everything that was happening. And he, and he really did not like what was going on. Would you agree with that? Yes, I definitely got that sense that he and he wanted things to come to a conclusion um, one way or the other. There are things that are said in those tapes uh, in relation to certain people, quote unquote, having to go. Um, and then, and, and uh, there's talk that implies perhaps individuals that were involved in the murder of Eddie Hutch certainly were of interest to them in terms of that discussion. Um but we don't know what that peace deal would have would have come to because obviously uh, it never it never came about. But I I sorry I think we can speculate or you know give a an analysis of this because there was a previous peace deal in relation to Gary Hutch when Gary Hutch tried to murder Daniel Kinnan in, in I always get this year wrong twenty thirteen in August twenty thirteen I think or twenty fourteen I, I always I always get it wrong. And our, our kind listeners always correct me, but it was in August 2013 or 2014, he tried to murder him in uh, Estepona. Now, as a result of that, you know, the Canaan's focused in on him, decided it was him. And essentially, the Hutch gang paid the Canaan's 200,000 euro. And also, the court heard that Daniel Canaan shot Patrick Hutch in the leg in Dublin. But near Drumcondra, in Drumcondra, actually, as part of this peace deal. Now, Mr. Hutch, Patrick Hutch has not been convicted of any any offence. That's important to say, but there was evidence that he was shot in the leg by Daniel Kinnan. Yeah, and well, going back to just explaining the relationship between Jonathan Dowdall and Patsy Hutch, um, you know, this came up during the trial. You know, why were you willing to go to such lengths to help them going up north to try and secure a, a peace deal with Republicans? You know, why why were you getting so involved? Well, he trusted Patsy Hutch at that point in time. He claims 
that he felt that Patsy Hutch was was a victim in this and that his son Gary had been murdered and effectively felt that the Kinahan cartels were the the, the Kinahan cartel were the aggressors and this 200,000 payments that that you're you're speaking about that they were effectively the Hutches were the victims in this now John the Dowdall changed his story and said that when he went to Wheatfield prison uh, he learned effectively the opposite and now believes the opposite um that the Hutches that is Patrick Hutch Junior and Gary Hutch were the instigators in all of this, and were uh, and, and he effectively feels the Ginnahans were the wrong party in that, which is a fascinating turnaround. I, I I think that is accurate. I think Gary Hutch definitely tried to murder Daniel Kinnahan that time in Spain, and you know, speaking to investigators, they would believe that, that was an attempt by Gary Hutch to take over from Daniel Kinnahan. So. I mean, I think that is accurate, what, what Dowdell is saying there. That was definitely a putsch or a, a coup d'etat by Gary Hutch. Anyway, so uh, the one thing I'd like to focus on, we know about these, you mentioned them, they recorded, uh, was that the 7th of March that the, the conversation was bugged from Belfast or from Dublin up to, I think it was Oma, was it? Or it's Traban somewhere? Yes, the 7th of March, that's where I'm coming to next in the timeline. So obviously, as we mentioned, uh, the guards were the National Surveillance Unit were very closely watching the movements of Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall. And there was a lot of interaction between Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall between what happened at the Regency right through to March. And it is on that faith day on the 7th of March that the cops had gotten permission to secretly bug uh, this Jeep that was being driven by Jonathan Dowdall. So they, they had an earlier fitted uh, tracking device and they didn't need judicial permission for that. It was just the Chief Superintendent in Security and Intelligence sends a form and they do that. But a, a bugging device, a listening device is a whole different ballgame. So they had to go to the district court and the, dis- the judge in the district court gave permission for a bug to be fitted to Jonathan Dowdall's four-wheel drive. Land answer crazy thing. Yeah, and what was fascinating in the trial, you know, the level of secrecy that the NSU go to, I mean, they did not want to initially confirm the existence of this device, although it came to a point in the trial where it was nearly quite silly not to confirm the existence of it, and eventually it was, because there was a bit of a question over uh, the legality of using such a device, uh, particularly when it crossed, when this vehicle crossed over the border, because an awful lot of uh, the conversation that was recorded did actually happen north of the border and uh, you know there was a a subsequently a legal challenge on that and the judges did have to determine the legality of it and and what was interesting about that was it was determined that uh, that that recording was potentially uh, illegal but that the guards uh, Miss Justice Tara Burns decided the guards acted in good faith and that evidence was actually ruled to be admissible uh, in in the trial in the end. Yes I was there that day it was the it was on a Friday I remember and the judge did say it was illegal not not the whole thing, but the, uh, the the evidence gathered by the NSU bug in Northern Ireland. Obviously, the guard at Siakana can only operate in the Republic. And the va- the Jeep w- w- went, started off in the Republic, went up north, came back to the Republic. So there was a good chunk of it was in Northern Ireland. And the judge said that that recording was illegal, but she allowed it in. And there's this whole question of Malafides and what you say that the guards weren't, you know, they thought they were doing the right thing or, you know, so she, she allowed it in after the challenge. And that's that's what judges do. They, they make their decisions. But there was uh, an alleged, the state says there was an admission in that tape. Yeah, and I think what was frustrating about covering this trial is that I suppose it took an awful lot of time for us to get to a conclusive point where we could really understand what the state's case was. I mean, you sat and heard the entirety of those tapes. I heard the majority of those tapes. And an awful lot of it is gobbledygook and and frankly bollocks. There's an awful lot of stuff in it too that's interesting as from a crime reporter's perspective. But it was very hard to isolate a particular part in the tape where you would say, this is evidence against Jerry Hutch for the murder of David Byrne. And it's only when uh, things were really kind of summed up by Fiona Murphy, uh, the senior counsel for the prosecution, that they made it crystal clear, although they indicated at the start of the trial that there was an admission, uh, a, a possible admission on this tape from Jerry Hutch. And that when you hear everything in its context, um, it makes a bit of sense. So there is a conversation about the meeting that they had with the lads in Straban. Uh, they went up that day to meet Republicans in Straban, allegedly, uh, again, to broker a peace deal. Um, and in that meeting, they they discussed a number of things and Jonathan Dowdall was not present for all of that. So Dowdall is kind of picking Jerry Hutch's brains and asking him 
what did you say to them? And uh, it's a sentence to the effect of, did you tell them that it was used at the Regency? And Jerry Hutch responds, ah, he knows, yeah. And that is now being made out to be an admission uh, on tape by Jerry Hutch uh, of his involvement uh, in the Regency shooting. Uh, again, uh, we're saying like a broken record, it'll be up to the judges to decide whether that is an admission. Uh, outside of the evidence that Jonathan Dowdall brought to the table, which is that he claims uh, that, that Jerry Hutch directly confessed to him and something that isn't recorded, this is the only piece of evidence um, that we can physically hear and examine, and the judges have been examining now for weeks, as to whether this is a clear admission to murder. Lots of other incriminating things are said, as I mentioned, in relation to uh, individuals having to go, uh, suggestions uh, of, uh, there's an awful lot of suggestions of violence on, on Jonathan Dowdall's behalf, which I don't propose to keep going into detail about again. Um, and there is also then talk of the quote-unquote yokes, which Jonathan Dowdall confirmed the, the state's allegations that those yokes are the AK-47s and the two of them are talking with the AK-47s. And certainly Jerry Hutch says some things uh, on the tape that, that you could contend are incriminating in relation to the yokes and talks about moving those yokes. And what's key to the discussion about the movement of those yokes is the context to that. This conversation is happening on the 7th of March and two days later, those yokes, those weapons are actually in transit after these two men are talking about having them moved specifically Jerry Hutch is talking about having them moved. Two days later, they're actually being moved and Shane Rohn is caught with them. And so the state is contending, well, when you put all of this evidence together, it shows the criminality. But of course, in Jerry Hutch's defense, Brendan Grehan, senior counsel defending Mr. Hutch is saying, that's not evidence of murder. Perhaps it's evidence of a firearms charge, but that is not the charge that Jerry Hutch is before the court over. Um, so, in relation to the murder charge, the only really pertinent piece of evidence in that 10 hour long tape is that sentence of, ah, he knows, yeah, which which the prosecution is saying is a confession. But I do think if the judges accept that Yokes is a reference to the Kalashnikovs, then Mr. Hutch has a serious problem. Well, absolutely. I mean, and and I think uh, Miss Justice Tara Burns did indicate that there was talk of criminality on the tapes. So it's something that they're taking seriously. And it's also worth pointing out to people that prior to Jonathan Dowdall becoming state witness and alleging some of the things that we're now going to talk about in a minute, the state really only had these tapes as its primary source of evidence. And yet the director of public prosecutions determined that that was enough to charge Jerry Hutch with murder. So the Guardi certainly felt and the DPP certainly felt that Jerry Hutch be charged with murder on the basis of the evidence that we're discussing on these tapes and on the basis of other evidence in the case. But the, the primary thing is what's said on those tapes. And that was the only evidence they had before Jonathan Dowdall came forward and said some of the more sensational things uh, in relation to a direct confession or alleged direct confession from Jerry Hutch. And just one other thing, you, you touched on it there, but it is important. There's a thing called an issue paper, you know, the charge sheet, the issue paper. And there's only one charge on it of murder. There's nothing about firearms. If you if you think back to the Patrick Hutch trial that I covered, he was charged with murder, but he was also charged with possessing the three Kalashnikov-style rifles used in the, the Regency attack. We know it's Shane Rowan was caught with them. But there's nothing like that with Jerry Hutch. It's just murder. There's no, I'm not going to say it's a fallback, but there's no other charge that he can be convicted or acquitted of. That's it. Yeah, and it's important to clarify that because I think people are maybe wondering, oh, could they charge him with something else? Yeah, no, the only charge is murder. He'll either be found guilty on Monday or not guilty. That's quite simply what's going to happen. He's either going to walk out those doors or be allowed to walk out those doors. Who knows what way that's going to be facilitated. It'll be something else. Uh, or he will be sentenced to life in prison, potentially. So we'll have to see what happens there. Well, we talk about Jonathan Dowdall. We'll talk about Jonathan Dowdall. I mean, obviously, Jonathan Dowdall is a complicated case and uh, him turning state witness was an extraordinary development. And I don't think anybody really kind of saw it coming. Um, but just to give people the brief timeline of events, Jonathan Dowdall was charged uh, with David Byrne's murder on the 27th of April, 2021. Um, the guards then had three meetings with Jonathan Dowdall last year. So it's all, it's all only last year on in May, uh, July, uh, so it may, sorry, May once and July twice uh, before they took a, a, a recorded statement. And it was then on the 16th of September 
of last year that the DPP wrote uh, and, and, and accepted um, that Jonathan Dowdo could plead guilty basically to the lesser charge uh, of facilitation uh, for murder. So right up to the last minute, he was facing uh, the charge of, of murder. We now know he's been sentenced to four years in prison for, for the facilitation charge. And he maintains uh, that he didn't realize um, that he was booking the hotel room for one of the hitmen involved in the Regency, although he, by pleading guilty, he does accept uh, that, that he committed a criminal offense. But on that point of the three interviews, this became a huge, massive issue in the trial. Uh, Brendan Grehan, defending for Jerry Hutch, made uh, a big point about this, that effectively there was some sort of a deal going on between the state and Jonathan Dowdall, in that Jonathan Dowdall would get what he wanted, which was having this murder charge dropped in order for him to then sing like a canary to the guards and give them what they wanted, i.e. his client, Jerry Hutch. Now, Dowdall did get grilled on this on the stand, which he was on the stand for five days, and he did ultimately um, accept that, at least in his mind, and and also there was evidence in relation to his solicitor, he was trying to get that murder charge dropped. And that was, in his mind, a condition for him coming forward with the information that he had. But in terms of the state, in terms of the guards, they vehemently denied uh, that any of their discussions with with Jonathan Dowdall uh, were contingent upon that murder charge being dropped. Of course, they were interested in speaking to him. um, But in terms of any kind of a deal, they've denied that there was a deal. Then those interviews, those now infamous interviews with Jonathan Dowdall, they were not easy for the guards. The first meeting that they had with him uh, was ex- incredibly difficult. It went on for hours and he was rambling from, uh, and, and this is why I don't want to talk about him on the stand for very long because he rambled and rambled and it's very hard to kind of understand where the point is, which is why the guards ultimately concluded, you go away now and write down all of your points uh, in a written document and come back to us. And then there was a long period of time uh, before the guards picked uh, Jonathan Dowdall up again and spoke to him and looked at this 42-page document in which he made all of these sensational allegations. He refused to sign that document, uh, ultimately put his initials on it and had his wife, Patricia, uh, read out all of the information on it. But the most sensational claim in all of it is that he claims uh, that Jerry Hutch personally confessed to him. And we'll talk a bit about that confession now. (laughs) So you and I, Mick, we were actually in Ellenfield Park earlier today and we thought it was important to go back there because it is the site of this alleged confession. And it, it, just to see for ourselves, I suppose, the lay of the land. And I, I think I'd be reasonably convinced that we went through the gate that Do- mm-hmm. Jonathan Dowdall claims he went through, a small gate there in the park and met with Jerry Hood. And what was your feel of just being in that park and getting a sense of, I suppose, imagining this uh, scenario where these two men supposedly met? Uh, the date, by the way, up for question, I'll come back to this, but it was either the 7th or the 8th of February when this meeting happened. I always sort of get the shivers when I go somewhere like that where it's alleged there's been a major incident. I can remember feeling the same way. I went to Shangana Cemetery and to the the shore for the Graham Dwyer trial. And it was just, you sort of, you just had a feeling. Now look, you know, we were there on the basis that this is what Jonathan Dowdall alleged. There's no CC. We were we were talking about this today. There's no CCTV evidence. There's no witnesses to back it up. There's no forensics. It's his word. Now, just to give context, uh, Ellenfield Park is just beside Whitehall Church on the road into Dublin. A very famous church there, and it's just just behind that. First time I'd ever been in it actually, even though I, I pass it, uh, you know, every day. So uh, it, it was just very interesting. We were talking about the case, and we were in the location where this conversation is alleged to have happened. So uh, you started, you do get the heebie-jeebies a wee bit. Yeah, I mean, look, if it happened, it's extraordinary. And I mean, Jonathan Dowdall, again, if it happened, is to be commended for coming forward and telling the truth. And he maintained to the very end that he was telling the truth. He was grilled on that witness stand, as I said, for five days, and he was proven to be a liar throughout his life. He was proven to be a criminal. He was proven to be someone that you certainly couldn't rely upon uh, in multiple different scenarios. But he maintained, and he, he even admitted that himself, he maintained that he could, he is in the past someone that you could not rely upon to tell the truth. But he maintained that on this, he is absolutely telling the truth and he has nothing more to gain uh, from continuing to tell this story of this meetup. 
And it is also important to stress that he was convicted of a very, very serious crime. He, he, he waterboarded a man who went to his house trying to buy, was it a motorbike? And he, he waterboarded it and we would call him a buck agent up north. He videoed it. And not only did he video it, he kept it. So when he came to the attention of the guard of the guardie after the Regency, they raided his house, 9th of March, I think, and they carried out a search. And what did they find? They found the, the USB stick with the video on it. And that's how the only reason he was convicted of the, the waterboarding. So not the smartest of criminals. But that was a very serious crime and he was convicted for it and he was jailed. Yes, and they raided his house the same day that they discovered the weapons, actually. But uh, just on that... They raided John Tadello's house because they suspected he was a member of the IRA and that he mm. might be holding firearms. Obviously, he was under suspicion as well uh, post-Regency. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, he was under surveillance in relation to himself and Jerry Hutch. Um, so shit really hit the fan for John Tadello. He went to prison for, for that uh, torture incident. Um, but just going back to the park, we're, as I said, I, I, we, we followed the timeline, but now we're going back and forth a little bit. But that's inevitable in trying to explain these things. Uh, but this meetup in the park, Jonathan Dowdall claims that Jerry Hutch met him and confessed to the murder of David Byrne. Uh, he claims that Jerry Hutch was agitated and uh, was distressed over a, a photograph, now infamous photograph that appeared in the Sunday World newspaper. And it was a photograph of uh, the gunman in drag and flat cap Kevin Murray. Now, at this point, the faces were pixelated. Uh, but he expressed concern that he thought that this person in the photograph might be Patrick Hutch. And he claims that Jerry Hutch confirmed to him that it was Patrick Hutch in the photograph. Uh, Jerry Hutch supposedly was very nervous and said that people were knocking on his family members' doors. And he asked Jonathan Dowdall, is there anything you can do for me? Are there people up north that you can speak to about possibly trying to bring about peace? He then allegedly said something to the effect of it was them at the Regency and uh, probed. Uh, he alleged that it was him and James Mago Gately that shot David Byrne. And he claimed that he felt bad for shooting that young lad, David Byrne. And he expressed fear that things were going to get very serious now as a result of the actions in the Regency. Obviously, that is an alleged confession. The only person uh, who heard that was Jonathan Dowdall. And it is up to the judges uh, as to whether they believe uh, they they take him to be a credible witness. Throughout his time on the witness stand, Brendan Grehan uh, made it his absolute mission to point out that Jonathan Dowdell cannot be trusted. Throughout his life, he has lied. Uh, even in the special criminal court, he lied. He called him a perjurer. Uh, and Jonathan Dowdell accepted in many of these scenarios that he was a liar and that he was a criminal. And then he was also challenged on the tape itself um, that, uh, Brendan Grehan pointed out that if anybody is speaking about criminality on on this 10-hour tape, it's Jonathan Dowdall, because he speaks about potentially blowing certain people up. He speaks about making uh, bomb circuits, uh, all kinds of manner of violence that Jonathan Dowdall dismissed the shy talk and said it was bravado and that he was trying to impress Jerry Hutch. And can we talk briefly about a lady called Sarah Skate? Now, I remember Sarah Skate from 2015 because she gave really, really important evidence in the Graham Dwyer trial. So she's a Garda civilian analyst, an expert on mobile phone data, cell site analysis, logging of numbers and everything. She, what's the word? She sort of backed up Dowdall's evidence. Yes, here and there. Now, depending on way you want to look at this, the, the, the key piece of evidence against Jerry Hutch is this alleged confession uh, at, uh, in Ellenfield Park, which is in Whitehall. We heard extensive evidence from Sarah Sked in relation to cell site analysis, which is evidence that can point to the location of a phone uh, at any given moment, whether it's an internet connection or uh, whether it's your text message or, your, or a phone call. And we heard that in relation to the 8th of February, which is the date that Jonathan Dowdall insisted to guards to the guards multiple times was the date that he met Jerry Hutch in the park. Uh, the evidence just didn't back that up. The evidence showed that Jonathan Dowdall's phone was pinging off a mask close to the Navin Road, which is where his home is. And then later that day, at the key part, part of the day, which is just before midday, sorry, post midday, actually, he was supposedly in Dundalk. So there was no evidence in relation to Jonathan Dowdall's phone that he was anywhere near that park in Whitehall on the 8th of February. And again, just to back up, that Dowdall continued to say it was the 8th of February because he can recall that's the same day that Eddie Hutch was murdered and he can recall being told uh, by the wife of Patsy Hutch uh, in a phone call that Eddie Hutch was dead. And Sarah Sked's evidence did show 
that there was indeed a phone call uh, from, from Kay uh, Hutch, that is Patsy's wife, to Jonathan Dowdall round about the time after Eddie Hutch was murdered. So he did get a phone call from her, but there was no evidence that his phone was anywhere near this park. When this was put to Jonathan Dowdall on the stand in the trial, he seemed genuinely stunned by that and shocked by that. It's the first time that he was learning this. And he said, oh, well, then I must be mistaken. Uh, and it was put to him that it could have been the 7th, the day before. Now, on the 7th, that's the Sunday. That's the day that the Sunday World newspaper came out. And he contended, oh, that must have been the 7th then. And Brendan Grehan kind of, uh, again, grilled him on that and said, well, which one was it? And was was putting to him that your story, which you've had one way, the entire way, is now suddenly different. But Sarah Sked's evidence on this is also very interesting in that it showed uh, Jonathan Dowdall's phone was pinging off a mast that could potentially be in the near, it, near so it's a, not a mast that would be the closest to the park, but it, it your phone could potentially ping off this mast were you in this park in Ellen Field. The only problem, the time is wrong. The time was supposedly a uh, quarter past three in the afternoon rather than before midday. And, and Dowdall seemed pretty insistent that he could remember uh, the meeting in the park being before midday. Uh, so he was stumped on that. He didn't really have an answer. He contended that it's uh, six years ago and perhaps he's just simply uh, over time forgotten exactly when it happened, but still insisted that he was absolutely telling the truth. And again, it's up to the judges, isn't it? It really is. But that is We've now talked about two particular strands of evidence. There's a lot that went into this case. It was 13 weeks. It was 52 days. There was mountains of CCTV, maps, and dozens of witnesses, and NSU evidence, and pictures of this, that, and the other. But when it really boils down to it, if you're looking to know what the evidence against Jerry Hutch is, it's really just two strands of evidence. It's what's said on those tapes, and it's this alleged confession, and this alleged handover of the hotel keys. If that evidence is accepted by the judges, well, then he's goosed. It'd be wrong with me to express a view per se, mm. but I think anybody that's followed this trial, and I've sat through most of it, there's no smoking gun, right? There is no smoking gun. You are supposed to find somebody guilty beyond all reasonable doubt. And that is what the judges have to decide as well. It's no different to these three special criminal court judges than it is a jury. They have to find Jerry Hutch guilty beyond all reasonable doubt. Now, what's going to be fascinating is a jury finds you guilty or not guilty and you never find out why. Uh, these judges are going to give us a detailed, lengthy judgment. It's probably the length of a book and it's going to be sent out to everybody on Monday after they read it out. And we're going to see in great detail their reasoning, which will be a, uh, you know, a, a lengthy and de- a thought out reasoning for why they either think Jerry Hutch is guilty or not guilty. Paul, I've got bad news for you. You may have to get your keyboard skills ready. I don't know if it's necessarily going to be published. It'll just be down to you guys. You're going to be in the court, I think. So you get your, your, your fingers ready to do the typing. I'm praying it's sent out to us. <laughs> I, 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 some judgments are sent out. I, I looked at my database and I can't find a judgment sent out from the Special Criminal Court. There's plenty from the Court of Appeal. There's plenty from the High Court, the Civil High Court. So I think it might just be up to you guys who are in the court that day. But it's going to be a morning of high tension no matter what. So it's this Monday, half ten usually, isn't it? It will be 11 o'clock on 11 o'clock. Okay. So be prepared because it might not be sent out. Yeah, we'll see. And and just on another point that we actually didn't speak about, uh, it's it, there's so much that happened with Jonathan Dowdall, you can really do another podcast on it. In fact, we did. We did many podcasts on it, which is why we're not going to go into mm-hmm. uh, unnecessary detail. But uh, Jonathan Dowdall, uh, another reasoning for doing all of this, supposedly, was he wanted to get into the witness, witness protection program. We're still none the wiser uh, as to whether he was successful in that endeavour. But he is still serving his sentence uh, in Limerick Prison, um, and he is also appealing his four-year sentence uh, for facilitating the murder of David Byrne. Um, I think he has, am I right, he's not pushing that appeal further until he finds out uh, what's going to happen on Monday. So even Jonathan Dowdall, he's very, very keenly aware of of this ruling and he thinks it might have some impact in relation to his appeal. So no doubt, I suppose if it's going to go his way, he might say, well, you know, Jerry Hutch was convicted upon evidence that I gave for a special criminal court um, and that is therefore in his favour, perhaps, uh, for his appeal. At least that's how he feels. Yeah, and it's also important to stress that he is being assessed for the witness security programme, which you and I call witness protection. But 
you know, the latest information, the latest evidence, because I think it was said in court, there's nothing about him being admitted to it. If he is admitted to it, he has to start his life abroad and his close family starts his life abroad. But that's down the road. It, he's being assessed for it at the minute. So I'm going to ask you and then maybe you ask me, although I don't I don't think either of us have the answer. But what's next, I suppose, if Jerry Hutch is, let's say, found innocent on Monday, what's the procedure? Is he allowed to walk straight out those front doors to to freedom? Uh, is he a security risk? Is something extraordinary going to have to happen in regards to protecting him? No, no. If you think uh, when the case against Patrick Hutch was dropped, he, he, he sauntered out the, the, the side exit and was taken away on a motorbike. And that's that. We don't have preventative detention or anything like that in Ireland. So unless something happens, you do remember we broke the story about Mr. Hutch being arrested before the trial for, uh, on suspicion of directing a crime gang. That, that investigation is ongoing. My understanding is no file has gone to DPP. Mm. So I, I don't think there'd be any decision in that. that you know, they could be famous last words. The only thing I can see if there is a, a, a decision on a charge they could arrest him at the, at the steps but I don't think we're at that stage so if he is found innocent he walks if he is convicted he's given the mandatory yeah and, and then the mandatory sentence for murder in Ireland is life it's an indeterminate sentence but what we can say is the, 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 so in other words it's not like in England they have what you call a tariff so you're given a life sentence and you serve a minimum of 15 years or 30 years you know, uh, that police officer who raped and murdered Sarah Everard was given a whole life tariff, he's going to die in prison. It's not like that here. Uh, and I think it's, it used to be seven years you can apply for a parole. I think it's 12 now you can apply for a parole. But what we do know is, on average, at the minute, life sentence prisoners serve 20 years before being released. That's the average. That And it's usually going up because it was 14, it got higher. Maybe even 21 years now. It's a very, very long stretch. So if he's convicted, automatic life sentence and a very, very long stretch of time in prison. So, I mean, it's fair to say if he is found guilty on Monday, they will sentence him then and there. Um, they, as you know, the Byrne family have been there every single day and they will be entitled to give a victim impact statement. Now, I have noticed in murder trials in the last couple of years, there has been a trend sometimes that although you're sent, you're convicted, you only you get sentenced a couple of weeks later. But he could be sentenced there and then. I mean, like Dwyer was done there and then, right? And there was a victim impact. It's mandatory. But but they may delay it for the preparation of victim impact statements. And the Byrne family, who have been very stoic there the whole time, they've had to listen to some very, very difficult evidence. And, you know, they've been there the whole time. They're entitled to their voice. He was their son. So they may decide it's up to them. They may decide. And, and look, we're, we're, it's, it's a very long scenario. But, you know, if there is a conviction, they will may want to give a victim impact statement. So it, who knows? We'll see. Yeah. Now, we didn't mention Jason Bonney or Paul Murphy, um, but they are also on trial and they are accused uh, of facilitating the murder of David Byrne by providing vehicles uh, to the hit team. And uh, we, we did a series of pods on that. So I, I don't propose to go into all of that, but there is CCTV evidence in relation to both of them and uh, allegations of the the use of their vehicles to pick up the hit team uh, from the St. Vincent's GAA club there uh, by the Charlemagne estate on the 5th of February. Uh, just to, to sum up their defence, uh, Jason Bonney, um, long-time uh, Hutch family friend, al- although he hasn't come to guard attention in relation to anything before this, um, has stated that his vehicle and there was extraordinary evidence in relation to him. His vehicle was used, but he maintains he wasn't the one driving it. And he claimed that it was his father, his elderly father, who is now deceased and can't defend himself, was the man driving the vehicle that day uh, to help uh, one of the hit team escape. In fact, uh, the person caught on camera getting into that Jeep was Kevin Murray, flat cap. Um, now, his father was in his late 70s. So you're talking about a man in his late 70s acting as a getaway driver pretty extraordinary claim but he was backed up uh, by a neighbor friend of his who claimed that she had seen him and interacted with him at a time where if he was driving the vehicle uh, that her story doesn't make any sense 
And then in relation to Paul Murphy, he's a taxi man. He's alleged to have used his taxi in the same capacity. There's CCTV footage of him going all the way up the whole road and in the direction uh, in and around the convoy. Uh, but he maintains that the evidence against him is not strong enough, that their CCTV footage is grainy and it doesn't necessarily pick up his taxi. It could be another taxi. Um, there are even claims that taxis can be cloned in relation to uh, his vehicle. Uh, he he maintained that he simply was not the one driving it. And there is no footage of him in any of the places where you can definitively say he is committing a crime. There is footage of him prior, but there is no footage of him at the Vincent's GEA. There's footage of his alleged vehicle. And he's saying it was a rainy day, grainy footage, and you can't prove definitively beyond all reasonable doubt uh, that I was driving the vehicle um, at St. Vincent's GAA. So that is that's a very, very quick summary of the evidence against those two men. But we will be hearing the judgment in relation to all three on Monday. So it's not just Jerry Hutch. Um, it'll be fascinating to see whether it'll be a different ruling for one or the other or all three. We don't know. Um, but it's going to be an extraordinary day on Monday. And I'm sure that the courtroom will be absolutely packed, uh, not just with journalists, but members of... The public and I've, I throughout this, I had people DMing me on Twitter and messaging me and telling me that they were attending the trial or fascinated in trial. In fact, I've had people telling me now that they're even booking the day off work to go in to see this verdict. So it's had an extraordinary impact on the public. I mean, to the point where people are taking days off work to come in and see us. So it's an extraordinary moment in history for sure. And we'll we'll be. I assume we're. I, I suspect we're going to be doing a pod on Monday evening after the verdict, anyway. Whichever way it goes. So we'll keep you updated. Yes, we'll be talking again on Monday. God knows. We'll see what happens. Um, okay. Will you be there yourself? Are you going? I don't know. I have to decide. I have to check my social diary. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks for all the messages. So we will talk again on Monday. <laughs>